0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, March 9th. I'm Marco Werman. Debt relief for Greece, but no relief in sight for a rising number of homeless Greeks. Nobody cares about
1: people. Nobody cares about the individual. I'm angry with the politicians, really.
0: And later, the challenges of cleaning up the Fukushima hot zone. We're walking into the
2: forest right now. There's very, very high doses of radiation. What we're looking at is like forest and (laughs) rivers. You get a sense of how difficult it is to clean up this kind of stuff.
3: MRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash
0: globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Greece is inching, and I mean inching, towards fulfilling the conditions for receiving a second round of bailout money. That money's critical to keeping Greece afloat. Today, the Greek government announced that private lenders have agreed to write down almost $140 billion worth of Greek debt. That's good news for Greece, but new figures out this week show the country's unemployment rate stands at 21 percent, and Greece's economy continues to contract. The world's Clark Boyd is in Athens. And, Clark, how positive is this debt deal for Greece?
4: Well, the politicians from the ruling party here are considering it an exceptional success. That's what they called it today. It is, after all, the largest government debt deal ever done. So the politicians here, uh, at least in the ruling party, are are being very, very positive about it and say that this is really turning a page for Greece and a step forward for the country. And and now the country can perhaps get on and and start taking care of business here and, and get the economy growing again.
0: So the politicians are optimistic. What about the opposition?
4: Yeah, well, the opposition tells a different story. You know, you've got uh, elections looming probably within about a month or so. And there's quite a few opposition parties who are, I think, trying to make some gain out of this and saying, well, the debt deal sounds really good for banks around Europe and the Greek banks, but what's it going to do for ordinary people?
0: Right. And we have to take into consideration, too, leaders in other European capitals who are bailing out Greece in part. German officials say Greece is hardly out of the woods yet. And uh, President Sarkozy in France says the crisis has finally turned a page. How do you make sense of all this?
4: Well, you're always going to get some differing opinions from the different European capitals. I think uh, a lot of people and a lot of leaders are seeing this through the prism of their own politics right now course, Nicolas Sarkozy is up for re reelection uh, this year. So I think it's fair to say that it's kind of a mixed reaction. And, and really, you know, European leaders have been looking at Greece for two years now and saying they're, they're trying to get this done. Uh, they've agreed to these measures. But will they really take the steps that are needed to make it happen? And I think there's still a lot of doubt that Greece will do what they've promised to do.
0: And Clark, what about the Greek people? You know, those people uh, who are dealing with these very stringent austerity measures, staring at 21% unemployment. What do they make of all this?
4: Well, I think on the whole that the the Greek people are are very skeptical at this point. They've they've been through... You know, two years of this uh, with their leaders saying, okay, this is the final page. We finally turned the page here. Of course, they're taking it with a sense of humor. uh, After one news report on Greek radio earlier today, they decided to play Monty Python's always look on the bright side of life. (laughs) Um, But to be honest with you, uh, for, for many, it is hard to look on the bright side. Wages have been slashed. Pensions have been cut. Many people have lost their jobs, and it's, it's leading to serious social problems uh, that, that Greece hasn't had, really hasn't had before, like homelessness. I went along earlier this week to a, a homeless shelter here in Athens to see, you know, what was being done to help the homeless.
0: And that's where your story today starts, Clark. Uh, let's hear it.
4: Two men play backgammon in the small courtyard of an old house in Athens. This is the headquarters of Klimaka, one of the few homeless shelters in the city. One man looks up from his game when he sees my microphone and tells me why he's here.
5: Klimaka, which
4: means ladder in ancient Greek, has been around for more than a decade. In the past, most of the homeless at help were addicts or had mental health issues. But now...
6: The situation has changed due to the financial crisis and rising unemployment.
4: Ada Alamanu coordinates homeless support for Klimika. She calls many of the people here the new homeless.
6: People that uh, up until recently, they had a good standard of living and now they found themselves on streets because they lost their jobs and also they have no support for a family or another network.
7: I have no income, so I had to leave my place.
4: George Barkouris is 60 years old. He's worked as a musician, a producer for Greek National Radio, and most recently as a computer technician. But he says the computer work dried up in 2007.
7: Well, I was not prepared about the situation. I always lived like a middle-class person. I never thought that was, it would be so bad for this country.
4: Sitting across from Barkouris is Leo, who doesn't give his last name. Leo's 65. Up until 2009, Leo made his living painting religious icons. Then, orders for his work fell off, and he couldn't pay his bills. He's been at Klímica for six months, and given the news about rising unemployment here, he expects to see more people like him.
1: Let's face it, it's still early for the new homeless to hit the streets. Give it six to eight months, we'll see them hitting the streets.
4: And he says he doesn't think Greek politicians will fix the
1: problems. Nobody cares about people. Nobody cares about the individual. I'm angry with the politicians, really. Because nobody cared about the individual the last 25 years. There was always the easy solution. We are short of money, we'll borrow. Nobody said uh, how we're going to to pay back the loans.
4: Leo and the other new homeless don't have many options. Athens has a few government shelters, but they're usually full. And so more and more people are relying on Klimaka, which doesn't receive government funds for its work with the new homeless. Effie Stamatoyanopoulou is a psychiatric nurse who volunteers at Klimaka.
6: It's about 600 people every week that come and go, you know, for snack, coffee, access to the internet, bathrooms, so they can have... A shower, because it's it's very difficult to find a place to wash yourself in
7: Athens.
4: Klimaka survives on donations. Greeks have given blankets, food, and clothing. The shelter has received so much media coverage that Greeks from abroad are sending money too. Klimaka only has 10 beds and space on the floor for 15 more people. But two or three times a week, Klimaka volunteers, many of them homeless as well, climb into a donated van and deliver aid to those on the streets. The van stops under a bridge in downtown Athens. There are about two dozen North Africans living beneath the bridge. Immigrants are having a particularly hard time in Athens right now. These young men from Morocco, Tunisia and Algeria ask for food, water, pants and shoes and more. This young man's residency papers are out of date. He's asking how to renew them. The volunteers promised to send someone to help him in a couple of days. Andreas Andriatis was recently living on the street after he lost his job in the tourism industry. Then he found Klimaka, some food and a pillow and some mental health counseling, he says. Now he's part of the team out on the streets giving out aid.
5: The shock was big, okay, and I think a lot of people, uh, they're not thinking about these people until it happens to them.
4: Andriatis is lucky. He says he's found a new job and is hopeful that he will start earning enough to get his own place again. Leo, the icon painter, says he's now getting a few orders. And George Barkouras says he's optimistic about his own future and his country's, but not because of Greece's political class.
7: We don't have to expect
5: anything from them.
7: We have the power as people to go on and go on. The only matter is for the Greek population to be united, and I see that there's a lot of solidarity between people now.
4: That solidarity seems to be making a difference for Klimaka as well. The group is hoping to use the recent uptick in donations to find a bigger space, one that has enough room for 100 beds, instead of just 10. For The World, this is Clark Boyd in Athens.
0: It's not looking good for a diplomatic solution in Syria. The head of Syria's main opposition group today rejected a United Nations call for dialogue with the government of President Bashar al-Assad. The opposition leader said such talks would be pointless and unrealistic as long as the regime continues to massacre its own people. The UN call was made by Special Envoy Kofi Annan, who is expected in Damascus tomorrow for talks with Syrian officials. The BBC's Jim Muir is following events from neighboring Lebanon. So this refusal, Jim, by the opposition to have talks with the Syrian government, is it a major blow to hopes of a diplomatic solution to this conflict?
1: Well, it's a standing position, so it's not really very surprising. Activists in general have long since been saying that uh, the hands of the regime are too stained with blood for anybody to talk to them. The Arab League, for example, also has dropped the word dialogue with the Syrian regime. It's calling for President Assad to pass power sideways to his vice president uh, and uh, to allow him to uh, preside over a transitional period to democracy elections and all that. The West, indeed, is also backing that same position. It's backing the Arab League initiative. And that is not in tune with the positions actually taken by the uh, special envoy, Kofi Annan, who, in fact, is calling for talks with all the parties on the ground, all the parties involved, which, in course, would include the regime. This is why nobody is betting too much on his uh, mission, because the uh, authorities in Damascus seem determined to press ahead on the ground and crush any resistance they come across, especially armed resistance. They're still also, apparently, according to activists, shooting peaceful demonstrators, as well as confronting armed opposition. So that process is going ahead, almost irrespective of whatever diplomacy is going on.
0: Now, uh, another UN official, UN humanitarian chief Valerie Amos today visited one of the refugee camps on the Turkish side of the border, this after uh, she had visited Syria uh, in recent days. She said that the Syrian government had agreed to a preliminary humanitarian assessment mission. Can you tell us what that means?
1: That would mean that uh, they would go around with the UN agencies and basically try and figure out who needs what on the ground. And obviously, it would depend on uh, where they would be allowed to go. Um, Quite quite clearly, uh, the regime is not going to take them to places where there is action actually happening on the ground, such as it's now moving the focus more towards Idlib in the northwest near the Turkish border, for example. Um, But there's also been more shelling in Homs, we're told, by activists. So they're clearly not going to allow unrestricted access which is what uh, Lady Amos wanted, they will go round and see in what ways the UN can help them. But it's quite clear from the Syrian point of view, it would all have to be coordinated through Damascus and in no way impinge on Syrian sovereignty. They're very, very sticky about that. So she has got, I would say, the minimum that she could have hoped for. She's trying to help the Syrians. They're saying, OK, help us, but very much on our terms.
0: And do you know, Jim, whether uh, they got into any detail about humanitarian corridors, uh, getting aid in and getting people out?
1: Amos did give them a detailed proposition on that count uh, for corridors that would come in aid corridors from Turkey, possibly from Lebanon, from Jordan, and so on. But clearly, the Syrian government side is is stalling on that. She she said she wants unrestricted humanitarian access, and uh, but on that issue, she's waiting to hear back from the from the Damascus authorities. So she has presented a plan, but she has, certainly hasn't got uh, approval for it. And as I say, anything that the Syrians suspect will infringe on their sovereignty or have people coming across borders not under their supervision, they are not going to accept.
0: I guess another way of viewing this, though, is that uh, Bashar al-Assad's uh, government is just playing a waiting game, waiting on the UN, waiting on the rebels.
1: Exactly. Well, that is is precisely what the opposition fear. They see this new mission being launched, and they, uh, Mr. Ghalion, the head of the Syrian National Council, the, the kind of main opposition umbrella group has said, you know, we are concerned that this is just another thing that the Syrian government will use to gain time. They're they're trying to finish off the affair on the ground by uh, crushing the opposition wherever they can find it. Uh, They need a bit more time for that, and they fear they will exploit uh, and go along with, but string along his mission uh, in order to gain more time to do that. The BBC's Jim Muir in Beirut. Thanks a lot, Jim. It's my pleasure. A
0: quick follow-up now on a story we reported yesterday. The popularity of the video Kony 2012 continues to amaze. The video is about African warlord Joseph Kony. Yesterday, we told you some 36 million people had viewed it on YouTube. Today, it's up to almost 60 million views. The video is inspiring a lot of passion. Some love it, some hate it. To learn why, just go to theworld.org. You're listening to PRI. The World is brought to you by
3: PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Take yourself back one year ago and consider the Japanese prefecture of Fukushima. It was a thriving, if somewhat obscure, corner of Japan. Today, though, the region is infamous. Much of it is empty, and 80,000 evacuees are living in limbo. The reason, of course, is what happened on March eleventh, two 2011. That's when a massive tsunami smashed into the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant on Japan's east coast. It caused a triple meltdown, massive releases of radiation, and an unprecedented crisis for the country. A year later, the cleanup at the plant has barely begun. And as Sam Eaton reports from the Exclusion Zone, no one knows if it will ever be finished.
2: It's the moment when the alarms on the Geiger counters all start going off at once that it sinks in. The bus I'm on is taking me inside a 12-mile ring around the Fukushima nuclear power plant that just about everyone else has been evacuated from. Up the coast, last year's earthquake and tsunami destroyed entire towns and left mountains of wreckage. But here, the devastation is invisible. I'm sitting here in a Tyvek suit, completely covered, looking out at abandoned fields, towns that used to be crowded with people. Now nobody's here except for the animals that were left behind. I've come here to see firsthand how the cleanup is progressing in some of the most contaminated areas, It's still early. The first phase of the cleanup only began in January, after the government finally declared the plant stable. Less than a mile from the Fukushima plant, we reach one of 19 model cleanup sites. Government contractors are shoveling dirt into thick plastic bags after tearing up the driveway to an abandoned house. Across the road, tractors scrape soil from a contaminated rice field but the most dangerous radiation levels at this site are in a tall stand of cedars. My interpreter and I head over for a closer look. So walking into the forest right now, there's very, very high doses very of high, high, radiation. Very high. What we're looking yeah. at is like
5: yeah.
2: forest and <laughs> rivers. And and you, know, you get a sense of how difficult it is to clean up to this kind of down stuff. Down And that's the crux of the challenge. The Japanese government says it wants to make the entire fallout area, all 8,000 square miles of it, safe to live in again. But no one's ever really tried something like this before. So the contractors and scientists are using sites like this one to try to see what works and what doesn't. They're digging up soil, spraying chemical fixation agents, even blasting iron shot over paved surfaces. But so far, the results have been uneven at best. In this stand of cedars, workers have removed branches, leaf debris, even some of the topsoil, exposing the tree's roots. But now they may also have to remove the trees themselves, because radiation levels are still more than 600 times the government's goal. (laughs) The voice on the bullhorn is Shinichi Nakayama, a nuclear engineer with the Japan Atomic Energy Agency. He's overseeing this initial phase of the cleanup, And he says they're finding that forests are the most challenging areas, which is a problem. (inaudible) Nakayama says 70 percent of the contaminated land consists of forested hills and mountains. And he says he doesn't even know if it's possible to clean up this kind of terrain. But no is not an answer local officials are willing to accept. At the regional government's offices in Fukushima City, officials want a cleanup target of one millisievert of radiation exposure per year. Katsumasa Suzuki heads the government's decontamination division. Suzuki says he hopes the model cleanup projects will meet that target. He says that would pave the way for the larger decontamination effort and ultimately make it safe for the 80,000 evacuees to go home. But even if the effort succeeds, it raises another problem. What to do with all the waste? Back inside the evacuation zone, a sports field at an abandoned school has been transformed into a lined pit where cranes stack bags of contaminated soil for temporary storage. The cleanup is expected to generate at least 3.5 billion cubic feet of radioactive waste. The government still doesn't know where all that waste will go. And then there's the question, once the cleanup is finally complete, what kind of place will the evacuees be going back to? Shinichi Nakayama, the official overseeing the initial decontamination, says there are limits to how much cleaning the natural environment can take. It's one of the biggest dilemmas here. The more radioactive material you remove to make the area safe for humans, the more damage you're doing to the land creating a whole new set of environmental problems and potentially throwing off the entire balance of the local ecosystem. Kiyomi Yakota says he thinks it's an impossible undertaking. Yakota is an environmentalist from Fukushima. I met him at a restaurant in Koriyama City, 37 miles west of the nuclear plant. He says if all the trees are removed, the still radioactive soils would erode into the rivers or the fields where the farmers grow their food, recontaminating areas even after they've been cleaned. Yakota says instead the government should do what the Soviet Union did after the Chernobyl disaster, create a permanent no-go zone for the most contaminated areas, and then use some of the cleanup funds to help people relocate. These days, Yakota is doing independent radiation testing for a Japanese television company, and he says he's finding hot spots in places the government has declared safe. Yakota says he no longer lets his three-year-old daughter play outside, and he's careful about the food they eat. He'd like to leave, he says, but he doesn't have the means. And even if the government did help people like Yokota relocate, Japan, unlike the Soviet Union, is already a very crowded country. Today, one year after the disaster, most of the evacuees live in compact, temporary housing. And there are very few places they could go to recreate the coastal farms, many of them left behind. I met a group of evacuated dairy farmers at a community center in Minamisoma, just north of the evacuation zone. They showed me pictures they took the first time they were allowed to go back to their farms. Nearly every one of their cows had died. One photograph shows a thick wooden beam that's been chewed through by a starving animal. Unlike Kiyomi Yakota, 62-year-old Issei Hangui says he wants to return to his hometown for good. But even if the government declares his farm safe, he wonders whether consumers will ever trust his milk again. And why should they, he asks. He and all the other farmers I talked to say they don't trust the government anymore either. Shinji Watanabe, who's 53, says he still can't decide whether or not he'll return to his farm, even if he's allowed to. He says he can't get enough information from the government to know whether or not it's safe. He says it would be one thing for him and his wife to return. They've already lived much of their lives. But his dreams of working with his son and eventually his grandchildren are gone, and he can't imagine growing old without them. And that raises yet another dilemma in the legacy of Fukushima. Even if the government spends tens, even hundreds of billions of dollars cleaning up the contaminated zone, no one knows if residents like Watanabe even want to return. For The World, I'm Sam Eaton, Fukushima, Japan.
0: You can see Sam's pictures of the Fukushima cleanup effort and hear his earlier report on the struggle to rebuild towns destroyed by the tsunami. That's all at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. reset its relationship with Russia around the now-outgoing president, Dmitry Medvedev. Problem was, Medvedev never stopped being Vladimir Putin's protege.
8: You can't talk about the sock puppet without the hand.
0: And speaking of puppets, we'll tell you about crazy Israeli puppet rockers, Red Band. That's ahead on The World.
3: PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic. Searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. President Obama called Vladimir Putin today, perhaps to congratulate him on becoming Russia's president, again. Putin won election last week, though critics say not without a touch of electoral fraud. But what of the soon-to-be ex-president, Dmitry Medvedev? He's likely to be Russia's next prime minister. Just four years ago, he was the United States' new best friend. Here's the world's Alex Galifant.
9: You know how you had that buddy when you were 10, and you hung out, and you talked, and everything was pretty cool. And then one day, your buddy moved away. Well, this story's a little bit like that. In 2010, Barack and Dimitri were chilling in Washington. They went out for burgers.
1: He is going to have chili pepper.
9: And Dimitri talked about how he thought the two of them should email
8: more. We could easily get a couple of iPhones and start texting each other or sending emails.
9: It was a friendship the White House was pretty excited about.
10: The Obama administration made an enormous mistake.
9: This is Stephen Cohen, a Russia expert at NYU. The mistake Cohen believes the White House made was over its so-called reset policy, a strategy to improve relations between Russia and the US. It was built around Dmitry Medvedev, who'd become president in
10: 2008. I think it grew out of a tradition that was already established. Since the 1990s, there had been an American tradition in Washington of meddling in internal Russian politics, of picking and choosing the Russian political actors Washington wanted to favor.
9: But then Vladimir Putin became president in 2000, and he seemed to enjoy, as NYU's Mark Galliotti told me, tugging the West's tail. Putin stirred things up in Ukraine and the Baltic states, and big no-no, he
8: offered support to Iran. All these kinds of things Putin got away with by more or less turning to the international community and saying, well, what are you going to do about it?
9: By 2008, relations between the U.S. and Russia were really pretty bad. And so when the Obama team arrived in the White House, they were looking to make friends, just not with Putin, who'd become prime minister.
10: So those two reasons, the tradition of meddling in Russian politics and the anybody but Putin frame of mind, Uh, led the Obama administration to focus on Medvedev. Now, there were superficial reasons as well.
9: Uh, Just a few. Dmitry loved Deep Purple. Dmitry loved Harry Potter.
10: Turned out he was a social media guy. He tweeted every day. He had a blog. It was
9: hard for the Obama administration not to crush on the new Russian prez. It wants to have a new
8: policy. It wants to feel that it can make some kind of a difference. And Medvedev precisely seemed to be striking exactly the right notes.
9: Dmitry Medvedev was a lawyer who seemed to believe in the rule of law. And unlike Putin, he wasn't associated with the Russian security apparatus. The question is, were the Americans also being set up to fall in love?
8: It's a time-honoured Russian tactic. We can go all the way back to KGB chief and then General Secretary Yuri Andropov. When he was rising to power, there was again these sort of carefully planted stories that he actually secretly loved Western jazz and read Western novels and such like.
9: And it seemed like the Obama team fell for it too. But maybe that's unfair.
6: They inherited the history and they had to deal with it.
9: Cynthia Roberts is a Russia specialist at Cooney's Hunter College. It's simple, she says. Medvedev was the president, so that's who the Obama team had to deal with. And she thinks they were more pragmatic than idealistic.
6: We wanted certain things. Get arms control, move forward in stabilizing the relationship. If possible, get Russia to cooperate on Iran.
9: On arms control, at least, they did get the New START Treaty. Question is, did the Obama team expect too much? Don't forget, Medvedev's always been Putin's protégé.
8: You can't be really talking about the sock puppet without the hand.
9: Mark Galliotti says there was a moment a couple of years back when he wondered if Medvedev was pulling free from Putin, ever so slightly.
8: But ultimately, Putin had chosen well. This is not a confrontational figure. This is not a man who's willing to go nose-to-nose with Putin.
9: And so, after bashing Putin and betting on Medvedev, it's back to the way things were. And that could be a problem.
8: It's clear that the relationship now will take a lot of rebuilding, quite frankly. Now,
9: where did we put that reset button? For the world, I'm Alex Galifant.
0: If there's a group of people who always understood where the power lay in Russia, it's political cartoonists. The world's Carol Hills checked back at the cartoons drawn about Dmitry Medvedev since he became president in 2008, and she found a consistent theme. Carol, what is that theme? Dormat. Oh, no.
5: We're calling (laughs) Dormat. You're talking sort of um, Medvedev as a mini-me to Putin, the guy who's not in charge. He's the beta to Putin's alpha. It's just over and over
0: again. And cartoonists love metaphor in their drawings. What are the popular ones?
5: Well, as you might suspect, things like a puppet marionette, dog jumping through hoops, a chicken laying an egg, the chicken being Putin, Medvedev the egg. Medvedev's in the driver's seat, but he's got a small steering wheel and Putin's next to him with a much larger steering wheel. The nested Russian dolls come up you know, two-headed leaders, all that kind of stuff.
2: I think
0: we get the picture. Now, you follow cartoonists from all over the globe, Carol, except the U.S. Are are the cartoonists commenting on Medvedev from all over, or do certain regions dominate?
5: Definitely Europe dominates on these kind of comparison of Medvedev to Putin. Um, A Russian cartoonist named Tunin, he weighs in a lot. A Kosovar cartoonist, I usually don't see at all. A lot from all over Europe, Germany, one Chinese cartoonist and an Aussie.
0: And you can see these cartoons in a slideshow at theworld.org. The world's Carol Hills, as always. Thanks. You're welcome, Marco. Tomorrow, opposition activists in Moscow are planning a rally to protest Vladimir Putin's return to the Russian presidency. There have been several large anti-Putin demonstrations in Moscow over the past few months. One of the fixtures of these protests has been the all-girl punk band Pussy Riot. The band is known for its guerrilla-style performances, taking over subway stations, trams, even Moscow's famous Christ the Savior Cathedral. Band members wear ski masks to conceal their identity. Last Saturday, though, some of the women were arrested and their identities were revealed. Reporter Miriam Elder has written about the band for The Guardian newspaper.
6: They got together After Vladimir Putin announced he was planning to come back to the presidency and started this punk band doing impromptu performances around Moscow with these really wild punk songs uh, denouncing Putin and the current political situation in Russia.
0: First, let's uh, hear what they sound like. We've got the sound from a music video they recorded, and one must say recorded rather bravely. Three members of the band are on top of a streetcar, a tram in in Moscow, and they're rocking out uh, on one of their anti-Putin songs. Here's a taste of the music. I know a lot of people who listen to the music of Pussy Riot find it kind of incomprehensible. There's a lot of kind of chaos and uh, feedback going on. But generally, what do their songs address?
6: Generally, their songs will call out Putin personally, and uh, they'll attack him. One of their most famous songs they performed, actually, on Red Square, the title of the song was, Vladimir Putin has wet himself, but said in a rather more colorful way. So it's, it's really rowdy language and something that particularly in Russia is just revolutionary for two reasons. One is speaking so openly against the government, but also as women, using this kind of language is just unheard of here.
0: Now, last Saturday, the day before the elections that saw Vladimir Putin get reelected to the presidency of Russia, the band was charged. What were they charged with and are any of the members still in custody?
6: Well, there were six of them that were detained, and I'm not sure that they've actually been charged, but they're being threatened with a charge of hooliganism, which carries a potential sentence of seven years in prison. What happened was a couple of weeks ago, they went into the most famous, uh, biggest cathedral in Moscow called the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, got up on the altar, and performed one of their anti-Putin songs. And again, in in a country that's very traditional, where the Russian Orthodox Church is very powerful, some people got very upset. And then on the eve of the election, there were a couple of raids, and they were taken into custody. Most of them are released But two of the young women, both of whom are single mothers, remain in custody and they've launched a hunger strike. And there's been a pretty big movement in Moscow of people signing petitions and coming out to try to get them released.
0: I mean, as you say, the Crisis Savior Cathedral is a pretty sacred place for a lot of Russians, quite symbolic. Do you think that in performing in Crisis Savior Cathedral, Pussy Riot actually may have lost some supporters in the anti-Putin movement?
6: Actually, what you see happening is people like Alexei Navalny, who is one of the leaders of this opposition movement, he wrote a blog post yesterday saying, you know, what they did was disgusting. I would never support that kind of an act. But at the same time, this campaign against them is completely unfounded. They don't deserve to be in jail, and they should be released immediately.
0: You know, one of the things that I've read is that Pussy Riot has pointed out in interviews that Putin wears a $40,000 wristwatch is something they say is intolerable when so many families in Russia are on the edge of poverty. It almost sounds like their critique is similar to the Occupy movement going after the 1%. Are they bringing something unique to the anti-Putin movement?
6: They do offer a unique critique and that's what they're kind of promoting, that every person who feels that the system is unjust should launch their own form of protest, be it art, be it music. And uh, at the very heart of it, they're punk rockers and punk rockers are against the system, are against, you know, incredible disparities of wealth, are against sexism. And uh, what's really new about them is just bringing this kind of uh, punk mentality to Russia and to Russia's protest movement.
0: Miriam Elder with The Guardian newspaper speaking with us from Moscow. Thank you very much. Thank you. For our GeoQuiz Now, we're searching for a tiny island in the middle of the vast South Atlantic Ocean. You might wonder why we'd ask you to name a mere speck of an island. It's an isolated spot 1,000 miles off the coast of West Africa. After Britain abolished slavery, the island became an important way station for ships sailing across the Atlantic, specifically British Royal Navy ships that were intercepting slave ships. Hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans were taken off slave ships and brought to this island by Royal Navy patrols. It served as a 19th century version of a refugee camp. So we turned to an archaeologist to pick up the story from there. Mark Horton is a professor at the University of Bristol in England. So tell us where you've been carrying out excavations and what you're trying to learn.
7: Well, the story is really quite a horrendous one. The, the slave trade was abolished in 1807, of course, mm. um, although slavery continued um, right in through the 19th century, in particular in Portuguese and Spanish colonies in Brazil and in Cuba. And from the 1840s onwards, the Royal Navy mounted patrols to try and intercept the slavers and stopping them reaching Cuba and Brazil. And there were literally hundreds of thousands of slaves coming out of southwest Africa and possibly also Mozambique. And having intercepted these slave boats, they had to put them somewhere, And so um, St Helena, which was right in the middle, was the obvious choice. And so they basically dumped them there, waiting what to do with them. And many of them were half dead when they were brought off these boats, partly because during this period it was an unregulated period of slave trade. So the conditions were even worse in the 19th century in the Middle Passage than they were in the 18th century. So the mortality was really high.
0: And... Probably a lot of the graves were people who were probably already dead on the slave ships that were brought ashore and buried. So this small island, as you said earlier, is St. Helena. That's the answer to our geo-quiz. Now, I understand you found not just skeletal remains on St. Helena. There are artifacts as well which may be uh, helpful in identifying where these slaves originally came from.
7: In many ways, yes. What was found um, with these burials was the most touching bit of the whole story, really, because the standard view is that when people went across on the Middle Passage they were completely stripped bare of their material culture but actually what we found in these burials was the remains of that material culture. We found a lot of evidence for beads for example, glass beads and it's possible to try and reconstruct where these beads are coming from um, and possibly connecting where the slaves originally came from We also found quite a lot of textiles and we also found some tags that may have been like slave tags with identification with numbers Numbers and names on them, although ours were so corroded we couldn't actually read anything.
0: I'm curious, just as an aside, did the British Navy end up having to do battle with, you know, like the Portuguese slave shippers? I mean, England had abolished slaves, but that wasn't the case with a lot of other people.
7: Well, the Royal Navy had overwhelming power, so if they were caught, that was that really. Mm. There's very little evidence of of pitched battles. The real problem of the Royal Navy is having intercepted all these slaves, what did you do with them? And St Helena was a very small island. And this kind of rather bizarre footnote to the whole thing is that after they were landed on St. Helena, the Royal Navy then essentially sold them into slavery. Um, It was called indentured servitude, and a lot of them were shipped to British Guyana and to the British Caribbean as it were servants, but indentured so they really had very little freedom. So in some ways the Royal Navy were making money out of the whole process.
0: Well, that's a strange irony considering that uh, England had abolished slavery and they kind of got right back into it. I know, but history is full of ironies. Coincidentally, about 10 days ago, I was on Gore Island in Senegal, staring out through that so-called door of no return where slaves would be marched onto ships for the passage, never to see Africa again. When you're there, it's overwhelming what that does to your imagination. But to actually see bones and to visualize the horrors of the slave trade, what was that like? Yes, I mean –
7: it is extraordinary that you've got these remains, mothers clutching their babies, um, we've got um, people who are, as it were buried together, but they're so entwined that they've clearly had some form sort of relationship in life. The overwhelming experience is that suddenly you come face to face with the victims of one of the greatest holocaust that humanity has inflicted and Suddenly they're people again. Um, So much of the studies of slavery, statistics is counting the slaves, millions of slaves. It's almost unimaginable um, the numbers and the suffering that people endured. But to actually see these poor people in the ground suddenly gives you that personal view of just how
0: awful it
7: really was.
0: Mark Horton, an archaeologist at the University of Bristol, telling us about the slave burial grounds on the island of St. Helena. Thank you very much for speaking with us, Mark.
7: Well, thanks for hearing about our story.
0: And we've posted photos of the slaves' beads and bracelets found on St. Helena at theworld.org. Also, our texting game winners today, Tricia in Houston, Angie in Carrollton, Louisiana, and Lachey in Carthage, South Dakota. If you'd like to take part next time, just text GEOQUIZ, One word, GeoQuiz to six nine eight six six. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In a moment, Israeli rocker puppets and they will rock you. First, though, we've been reaching out recently to veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and asking them to tell us what it's been like to come home. We'll present their stories in their own words next Friday. Here's a preview. U.S. Marine Alex Hull is a veteran of the Afghan war. His mother visited him when he recently arrived stateside at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. She shared these thoughts with us.
11: I'm Patricia Hull from Framingham, Massachusetts. My son served two tours in Afghanistan in the Marines. His homecoming was a relief. The enormous weight of the unending worry was gone. Two tours in Afghanistan, and after each I watched him march back into Camp Lejeune on two legs physically intact, smiling, and happy. Though after his first tour, he told me he thought of himself as a monster. This is something we don't often hear from veterans, Never mind our sons. Alex doesn't like to talk about why he thinks he's a monster. Post-traumatic stress manifests in many different ways. But what I remember from that night was how he looked right at me. He didn't stare into his drink, into space. He looked right at me, wanting to see my face. How I reacted mattered to him. In that gaze, he reached across an abyss to find a meaningful connection, to find the strength he'll need to eventually walk back into his life. That gives me hope as I wait for him to arrive back in Framingham, home, on Saturday. But then, talk about irony, I'll still have to worry about him when he does.
0: Tomorrow, Alex Hull will come home to Framingham, Massachusetts, and his mother, Patricia Hull, If you're a vet or close to someone who is, we want to hear what homecoming has been like for you. Text the word RETURN to 69866 on your cell phone. We'll let you know how to take part. It'll cost the same as a regular text message. Again, that's the word RETURN to 69866. Our final item today is from Israel, and when I first heard this story, all I could think about was Animal. You know, the crazy drummer from the Muppet rock band with his long hair flailing whenever he takes a solo. But Animal is a mere starting point for our story about Red Band. This group of musical puppets is from Tel Aviv, and as reporter Zach Rosen tells us, they're a little more out there than the Muppets.
12: The core of Red Band is made up of three guys. First, there's Red. He's got fluffy hair and big, sad eyes and a killer 1970s mustache. He's also purple. And uh, I'm the lead singer of Red Band, and uh, I am also a living legend.
0: Hey, hey, mom. Said the way you move won't make you sweat, won't make you groove.
12: And then there's Poncho. He's got a soul patch under his lip, and he's usually wearing sunglasses. He's yellowish-orange. I'm a professional guitar player. I hope that we can progress as a band and make some money. And finally... I'm Lefty. He's got a bushy beard, thick eyebrows, and a receding hairline. Oh, and he's blue. I play the keyboards, and I'm the band nutritionist, slash makeup artist, slash fashion designer, slash chef. Red and Pancho and Lefty are puppets. They're made of felt. They only play covers. And they're really raunchy. Poncho has a real hemorrhoid problem. Show him the picture on your iPhone. Show him the picture of your hemorrhoids. I went to go meet Red Band before their show in Tel Aviv. I wanted to hear their backstory. Hear how they went from street performers to having their own popular TV show. I wanted to hear how they were able to convince some of Israel's biggest pop stars to perform with them. But the problem was the guys behind the puppets, Ari Pepper, Micah Duman, and Ami Weissel wouldn't talk to that. me out of character. Huh? How'd you guys learn how to be puppeteers? Who?
10: Next question!
12: This lasted for the entire <laughs> interview. So we're gonna do in character for the whole time? Yeah. That's, that's how it works? <laughs> that's okay. okay. It wasn't until weeks later um, that I got Ami sorry. Wysel, the guy who plays lefty, to actually talk to me. we finally able to make this work. Yeah, man. Ami and the other two guys met while they were students at Tel Aviv University. And Red Band started informally, like these things often do, guys getting together to play some music, and then they began hand-making their own puppets and started performing with them on the streets of Tel Aviv. Back in 2005, it was generally like uh, folk music. So they were messing around with the puppets and playing that famous Country Joe McDonald song.
11: What are we fighting for? Tell me, I don't give a damn. And then it's Vietnam. Yeah, exactly that song.
12: And this woman came up to them clearly offended by the anti-war song, and she started fighting with Red. She was yelling at the puppet, not the puppeteer. I remembered how powerful it was that she was only kind of confronting the puppet, not confronting us. It was kind of the shield was working. Soon after that, the guys moved from the streets to cafes, and that's where a couple of well-regarded television producers saw them play. They came up to us and said, hey, we we like this, we're TV producers, so let's talk, and we did And uh, immediately, the code words were Spinal Tap and uh, South Park. That established the the combination of having something that's unreal, that's kind of pretending to be real, and the South Park part was about the combination of sophisticated humor with, uh, you know, uh, fart jokes.
11: One year later, the
12: show, also called Red Band, premiered on Israel's Hot Network. The concept, basically, is that the band is reuniting in Israel. After a 30 year hiatus,
0: ah, my from
12: doing, they're back to relive their supposed glory days as rock stars, and it's all shot, mockumentary style. The show ran for two seasons, and Ami tells me there's probably more to come. One of the reasons the show has become so popular is that from the beginning, they were able to attract the biggest names in Israel rock and pop to perform with them on the show. The first episode featured Shalom Hanoch, who's kind of like the Israeli Springsteen. Here's Red Band's version of Crazy, the Narles Barkley song. On vocals is the singer Nanette, who became famous on Israel's version of American Idol. I think the most compelling thing about Red Band, more than the music and comedy, is just how fluid the puppeteering is. The way Red grabs the microphone off its stand, or how he looks back at Poncho during a guitar solo, you almost forget he's a puppet. During the live show, the puppeteers are miked up and do all the singing, and they're backed by a full band. Rock and roll. The TV show has catapulted red band from street performers to actual rock stars. The 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 now they're selling out clubs, clubs in Israel and playing shows big all, big big all big over big the world. So For The World, I'm Zach Rosen.
0: You can see the fuzzy and raunchy rock stars of Red Band performing the now-classic Neral Barkley hit, Crazy, you heard earlier. It's really, really great. We have the video at theworld.org. That's our program today. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman, wishing you a great weekend.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International